Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asian's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Marlon, Shweta and Shubhanga. Hi guys. Hello. So our big stories um, this edition include the ongoing military coup in Myanmar, Nepal's constitutional crisis and growing protests against the Prime Minister, and a quick overview on vaccine rollout across South Asia. Let's begin by catching up on the situation in Myanmar. So, on Monday, we all woke up to the Myanmar coup d'etat. Now, the four of us were actually planning our South Asia Sphere podcast. Suffice to say, it kind of uh, derailed most of what we were going to talk about. Yeah, um, military coups do have that tendency. <laughs> right, Shobanga. So, uh, so the military took over the government, arrested civilian leaders, including Aung San Suu Kyi, the leader of the National League for Democracy, declared a state of emergency, shut off the internet, and closed the airport. Already, parallels are being drawn between March 1962, when the military first seized power, which led to decades of military rule. But I feel the coup on Monday should not come as a surprise because the army was hinting at the possibility of such a takeover the whole of last week. But uh, most analysts did not think that the army would be, you know, capable of such a move. As we speak, Facebook has been banned in the country, and frontline healthcare workers from more than 70 medical facilities across the country have decided to go on strike. This does not bode well for Myanmar at all, especially since, you know, if you haven't noticed, there's a pandemic going on. The USDP and the military demanded that the start of the parliament be postponed until the claims of election fraud are addressed. And get this, the military actually tried to justify the coup by citing section 417 of the constitution. But the validity of such interpretation is questionable. As you can see, they are trying to frame this as, a, as an effort at protecting the constitution and the rule of law. Uh, thanks for that overview, Marlon. Um, also, I think it's perhaps important to also understand these uh, political developments, you know, in light of what happened last year, uh, particularly the NLD's efforts in the parliament in the early 2020 to amend the constitution um, to effectively demilitarize the parliament or um, slightly uh, weaken their position. So one of the proposed amendments aimed at uh, gradually bringing down the share of parliamentary seats uh, reserved for the military from 25% to 5%. Um, another proposal sought a change in the percentage of vote you need for making constitutional amendments. So uh, right now it's 75% and um, they attempted to bring it down to two thirds. But, you know, neither of these amendments passed, uh, even though both of them, you know, gained nearly two thirds of the votes. Yeah. And just to add to that, what seems unclear to me is that are the potential impacts of this on Myanmar's international relations. So we know that Pre-2012, the Burmese junta was quite uh, used to international sanctions and partly as a result of economic support from China and the North. But I don't think it's clear if this move puts any of Myanmar's international allies at ease. Right. And I think China, for one, would be following the developments quite closely, um, especially since China has strategic interest in Myanmar as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. Um, apparently on Tuesday, China's foreign ministry spokesman, Wang Wenbin, 
said that China hopes that all sides in Myanmar can resolve their differences within the constitutional framework. That's quite a lukewarm response, isn't it? I mean, considering China's recent diplomatic intervention in talks between Myanmar and Bangladesh on the Rohingya repatriation. Now, over the past two years, uh, Chinese officials have mediated meetings between the leaders of these two countries. And earlier this year, Myanmar had actually agreed to start the repatriation process, but within the second quarter of the year, and I think they cited logistical issues. Um, at this point, it's it's quite unclear how things will unfold, especially given that you know Myanmar is experiencing quite a big logistical issue right now. Moreover, um, China has promised to provide free COVID vaccinations to the Rohingya during the first phase of repatriation. That's right, Marlon. And I guess China isn't the only country that is mixing vaccines and diplomacy. So if you look at the region, India has been quite quick to respond, which is unsurprising given that it is one of the world's biggest um, pharmaceutical manufacturing capacities. So India began its own immunization drive on January 16th, and they had healthcare workers and people over 50 uh, vaccinated first. But what's really interesting is that India has also shipped over a million free doses of the Covishield vaccine, as the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is called, to neighboring countries. And this move is being described as vaccine diplomacy. Um, so it's quite revealing of relations between countries in the region. So the first countries to benefit from this include uh, Bhutan and the Maldives, and they were closely followed by Nepal and Bangladesh. Right. And uh, well, the announcement about the free vaccines came on short notice, right? And it seems like you know, it was linked to the vaccination arrangements made by the governments of these countries, um, particularly, you know, making sure that COVID shield had the uh, necessary approval. That's right. I think part of the reasons why certain countries were first in line was either due to planning or just good timing. Um, so, for example, Nepal's drug regulator granted emergency use approval for Covishield while their foreign minister, Pradeep Gyawali, was in Delhi on a three-day visit. Um, Nepal sent diplomatic notes to India as well, and they also wrote to Russia, China, the UK, and the US about the vaccine and their requirements. Bangladesh has already signed an agreement with India for the procurement of 30 million doses aside from you know, their first consignment of vaccines. But other countries have been uh, less kind of organized. So Afghanistan, for example, is experiencing significant delay with the vaccine rollout. Um, now over in Pakistan, things are looking a bit bleak on the vaccinations front. Uh, due to delays in placing orders with vaccine manufacturers. They finally received uh, 500,000 doses of uh, Sinopharm from China on Monday. Um, although they granted approval for three vaccines, including the Sputnik V, their vaccination plan is yet to be made public. That's right, Marlon. And just to add to that, Sri Lanka has also delayed granting approval for COVID-19 and didn't immediately make their vaccination plans public. Um, but Sri Lanka eventually did receive 500,000 doses of COVID shield, um, which were rolled out to frontline health workers and members of the triforces. China is also said to be donating 300,000 doses of their Sinopharm vaccine 
while Sri Lanka is also said to be in talks with Russia. Yeah, and I've also been hearing that some countries are nervous to take the uh, the COVID shield vaccine. Now, in Sri Lanka, for example, a, a survey was conducted recently by the Health Promotion Bureau, but on Viber, um, it found that uh, 54% were willing to take the vaccine. That's right, Marlon, but there were also around 38% who responded saying that they were not sure and they were also raising concerns about the type of vaccine, uh, the amount of dosage and side effects uh, from among those respondents. However, there was also criticism about the survey itself because some media actually reported that the results were representative of the whole population rather than that of the Health Promotion Bureau's Viber community. Yeah, and uh, healthcare providers in other countries also appear to have expressed concern about the COVID shield vaccine. You know, perhaps purely because of the speed at which these things have been rolled out. Um, one Nepali FM report I was actually listening to mentioned how many healthcare workers were somewhat hesitant uh, about taking the vaccine. And uh, they, in fact, got hold of a senior public health official to come on the show and, uh, you know, allay fears about its uh, side effects. And this is for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which, as far as we know, is the most rigorously tested one. Um, it's very likely that we might hear more debates you know, on vaccines and concerns about them, um, like the ones produced by Bharat Biotech in India, which is being rolled out despite you know, the phase three trials not being complete, or the China-based Sinopharm, whose efficacy we still have only partial data on. Yeah, that's right, Shubankar. And apart from you know, these concerns about the vaccines, there's also the continuous spread of misinformation about COVID-19 to contend with and part of that is also on miracle cures, which is also muddying the waters. So in Sri Lanka, one such portion, which contains honey, turmeric and nutmeg, and was touted by a faith healer called Dhammika Bandara, caused thousands to gather in Kegal, defying restrictions on public gathering in December. And among those who actually took the portion, despite it not receiving official approval, were ministers including the health minister herself, Pavitra Vanyarachi, and she later tested positive for COVID-19. Now, in India, members of the ruling BJP have said that cow urine could help boost immunity against COVID-19, while a yoga guru, Ramdev, a supporter of Modi, made an Ayurvedic kit initially marketed as cure, and it's now being approved as an immunity booster. Um, while in Telangana, the chief minister reportedly said that paracetamol was enough for COVID-19. And of course, let's not forget that this is not just restricted to the region, uh, with former U.S. President Donald Trump's claim of injecting bleach as a treatment, which he later on said was sarcastic, but which some Americans actually attempted by way of inhaling or even using cleaning or disinfecting sprays in order to try to uh, treat themselves or immunize themselves against COVID-19. Um, so which one of these is your favorite? Well, mine probably has to be the cow urine immunity booster shot. My choice would be Guru Ramdev's Patanjali. Um, guys, I have a confession to make. Uh, I've been taking paracetamol ever since I heard uh, Chief Minister KCR <laughs> from Thailand. <laughs> and since I haven't got COVID, I think it works. So <laughs> no, that's my favorite. Uh, no, I think the clear winner is the, the magic potion from Sri Lanka, um, the one that health minister took. So 
you know it in some ways it was the most successful one even though she did test positive right yeah uh, i guess i agree with that so uh, moving on to what's been happening in nepal um, over the last several weeks there have been a spate of protests in the country in response to prime minister kp sharma oli's decision to dissolve the parliament and call for fresh elections um now it's well known that oli's move was the result of a long drawn out struggle for leadership within the ruling nepal communist party um and this itself can be seen as a result of the incomplete and somewhat odd unification of two rival um nominally communist parties so um so this was the last you know his last ditch effort to remain as the pm because he was actually about to face a vote of no confidence initiated by a faction of his own party um but i think that the real problem at the moment is not just these um, you know growing political tensions uh, but the fact that this presents a real constitutional crisis um because if you listen to the overwhelming majority of legal experts but also if you just read the constitution it's uh, clear that oli's move is not really envisioned in it uh, and that seems to be at the center of the of the crisis yeah i read that the case is now in court um what do you think the likely outcome is shubhanga so uh, like i mentioned the constitution doesn't seem to empower a pm to you know dissolve a parliament in this manner as long as there are options to form a government from within the parliament um however it's being heard by the constitutional bench of the supreme court right now and the arguments have been going on um and that will really decide the fate of the current government and also the current parliament uh verdict in favor of the pm would mean fresh elections in april or may the other point worth noting and and which is also the subject of a lot of debate in nepal right now um is the role of supreme court in all of this and how they will decide this court um now the just to note the reputation of the supreme court is not the best at the moment it's you know it's it's suffered in recent years and partly due to allegations of corruption uh, and what some see as partisan verdicts it also seems like there are a few separate protests happening like the one by the rival faction of the ruling party and other by non politicians yeah i mean that's the other interesting thing so the rival faction of the ncp has been protesting since day one um the opposition nepali congress has also been doing some protests although the party is kind of divided on it because some in the party see benefit in you know having early elections uh, rather than going to the old parliament where they were uh, outnumbered uh but what must be noted is also that there's also been uh, involvement of non politicians so basically a loose coalition of public spirited individuals you know including journalists writers lawyers activists and so on um who been protesting and and it's in the headlines uh, partly because of some police repression they faced um i'm avoiding the word civil society here because it's often misunderstood to mean kind of a large coalition of ngos and so on and and that is not really i mean they're not really leading the protest now um and but also because civil society properly understood itself is i think quite polarized and i would argue that there is a you know substantial growing section of a conservative civil society in nepal and uh, it might be interesting to see that in relation with the pro monarchy rallies that took place in a few cities recently um and also pm oli's you know growing use of religious symbolism in his speeches um, i mean he's is been known to be a nationalist but uh, this is uh, this is something new so uh, moving on to other stories that we've been following Uh, I think Shweta, you've been looking at the India's farmers' protest. 
Yeah, that's right, Marlon. For over the past two months now, we know that thousands of farmers have been camped along the borders of Delhi to demand a full repeal of the three new farm laws. So on January 26th, what followed the tractor period on Republic Day was a violent escalation of a protest that has been mostly peaceful since it began. So Delhi police said it has arrested over 120 people in connection with the crashes, and at least one protester was killed. Now, several states have registered cases against journalists who have reported on the cause of the farmer's death. That's right, Shweta, and Twitter also temporarily withheld some accounts, including that of the magazine Caravan from being viewed in India. On Wednesday, the government sent notice to Twitter against its move to restore accounts which used certain hashtags linked to the farmers' protests. We actually recently put out a media file with more background on the issue, so do head to the Himal website to check it out. With enhanced security measures near the protest sites and suspension of internet services across Delhi's borders, we're seeing continued support pouring in for the farmers, not just from within India. So earlier this week, the Indian government and several Indian celebrities hit back at criticism from singer Rihanna, climate activist Greta Thunberg, U.S. lawyer and activist Nina Harris, as they tweeted in support of the farmers' agitation. So while the government doesn't want to be seen as backing down from the farm laws, the centre is facing more pressure as support for the farmers' movement grows. The farmers' union leader on Wednesday pledged to continue their protest in Delhi and broaden their support for the movement across the country, indicating that their agitation will not end till October. Thanks, Shweta. And that's it from us for this edition of South Asia Sphere. Do check out our membership plans and support our work. And do head over to the site to check out the cartoons for this edition by Ihan Dichkera, as well as commentary and analysis from the region. Thanks, everyone. Bye. 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 For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com slash podcasts.